Welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. Areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. Welcome or welcome back to our podcast. With me, as always, is my good friend and instructor, Chase Cooper. Chase, how are you? I'm good, Doc. We got a fellow golf nerd on with us today, a, a, a golf swing nerd, a 3D nerd. I'm, I'm excited about tonight's episode. It's, yeah. uh, it's right up my alley. This is one of the episodes where uh, Raymond here takes a back seat and steps aside and gets and lays down so that Chase and our guest Ryan Crawley, who's a good friend of mine, a good friend of ours, uh, can talk golf instruction with some real depth, talk about some golf instruction technology with some real depth. And, you know, hopefully after today's episode, our listeners will have a little bit of better understanding of some of the things that they can do if they want to um, enhance their lesson taking experience their own kind of swing assessment experience and get an idea of what the future looks like around the corner for uh, golf instruction as it relates to motion capture, but also get to know Ryan Crawley a little bit. So uh, without further ado, Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, huge fan. So I appreciate you guys having me on. I've been following along to all the episodes. I've uh, obviously read your book, uh, Ray, numerous times. So uh, this is something that I've been you know, looking forward to. So I appreciate you guys taking the time and chatting with me here a little bit. Ryan, uh, just real quick, where's home base for you right now? Yeah. Nowadays I'm uh, located in Northwest Arkansas or Bentonville, Arkansas. I always like to say Walmart country. Definitely a Wally world around there for sure. Big time. But you're a Wisconsin boy. I am. I am from Wisconsin. I uh, pretty much lived in the Midwest my entire life. And then a few years ago, uh, right during COVID and, and all that pandemonium, decided that we wanted to move down south, uh, get a little bit warmer weather, which is obviously a little bit better for, uh, you know, golf compared to living in Chicago and Michigan and Wisconsin, where I've previously been. It's definitely a seasonal uh, teaching instruction up here where I live, unless you have an indoor space all to yourself. So no doubt about that. Um, Ryan, one of the things that I really like about you other than us being friends, uh, is that you're, you're a real homegrown kind of built it from scratch instructor. You know, you didn't have a lot of connections earlier in your career and you had to get to where you were by just, you know, for a lack of a better Ben Hogan phrase, digging it out of the dirt a little bit. Give us a little bit of your backstory you know, your introduction into golf, your introduction into golf instruction. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Yeah. So for me, I'm kind of got into golf late, I would say, at least when you're, you're thinking of it from trying to play professionally and competitively. I started with playing when I was 14 years old and I was always a, you know, fairly athletic kid, uh, did really well in other sports. And honestly, those other sports were, were mainly my passion. Uh, but I was getting burnt out and kind of my main sport at the time, football, and I needed a break. And so naturally, I kind of looked at my options for a sport in Wisconsin and saw golf as an option and thought to myself, hmm, that can't be too hard. Like, you're just hitting this little golf ball. That should be easy. Yeah. You guys should have golf and you guys have golf in Wisconsin. Is it warm enough up there? Like, what, I didn't realize. Is it on the ice? Is it is it like it's it's, it's snow golf? <laughs> yeah, it, it starts that way. It starts in the ice uh, pretty much. I mean, it's spring, so there's times it's snowing, raining, sure. it might be a beautiful day in there, but it's pretty cold to start in Wisconsin. And that's where I originally kind of, you know, started playing was pretty much my freshman year of high school. Uh, never gotten a golf lesson before at that time. Uh, really never hit golf balls before. Like my grandma took me once in eighth grade uh, because she was into golf and nobody else in my family golfs. So it was just one of those things where uh, my football coaches wanted me to do track. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing track. Like I'm <laughs> burnt out. I want to, uh, you know, just do something that's going to get me away a little bit. And I found out how hard golf was, to say the least. I, I don't think I hit the golf ball in the air. I pretty much hit everything just like a low liner, thin, ended up shooting like 57 or 58 for the day for the nine holes and was just frustrated beyond belief because I couldn't imagine that this game was this hard and it didn't help that one of my really really good friends was also very good at golf me being a competitive person 
you know, wanted to be as good as him then. So that, that kind of drove me all the way through high school to where it was like, okay, I can't be bad at this sport because I hate being bad at sports. It's the, really the only sport that I was naturally just terrible at. Uh, and so I worked really, really hard. I hit golf balls a ton. I played golf. I, I never actually got a golf lesson. I started teaching before I actually received my first golf lesson, which is probably a little unique. Um, but my my family, they they didn't understand golf. They didn't understand why you would need a golf lesson. They just said, you know, you can figure it out. Go play golf. And, and you figured out every other sport for the most part. So here you go in golf, uh, you know, lessons are pretty expensive. So that wasn't my luxury of let me go and, you know, take lessons and learn from somebody. It was me watching the golf channel, uh, basically looking at swings in slow motion, reading as many golf books as I could in high school, and really just taking in the information starting my freshman year all the way to the time I was 18. And so I got good pretty quickly too. I went from, uh, you know, freshman year, just being terrible. And then the next year being on varsity shooting in the seventies. So pretty much went from a hundred down to 70, I would say high seventies at that time, junior year started shooting around par senior year shooting around par. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I started off with, uh, my kind of background in golf. So you were, uh, you had to learn it on your own. Like you said, kind of this, uh, like organic thing where you're just observing a ton of things, whether it's online or reading a bunch of books, like you had to learn it on the fly on your own by gathering resources rather than someone sharing it with you directly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just trying to take in as much information as possible. I think being very curious and and asking people lots and lots of questions, you know, even from just understanding how to play the game. I can remember one of the first things I ever did was going and helping out at an AJGA event just for some like a cash little offer that the, the head pro is offering up and never really been to a country club before. And so I just showed up and I had like cargo shorts on and a nice polo. And I thought that was good enough. And yeah, he pulled me off the side. He's like, you can't be wearing this here. And thankfully he was nice about it. He gave me a pair of pants for the day and I was good to go. But it was all the things of like etiquette and, you know, that comes with golf that I was just completely oblivious to. And I had to learn on the fly, uh, you know, on top of just also learning how to hit the golf ball. So the old Wisconsin tuxedo wouldn't cut it? No, 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 not cut it at uh, where I was at. Probably one of the more embarrassing times in my life. But thankfully that that pro handled it really well i would say good friend of mine now worked for him for many years after that right and you had an interesting comment about uh you probably gave lessons before you ever took a golf lesson um Mm -hmm. why where'd you you know kind of find the interest in helping others even though like i would say most instructors like i got into it because i had you know kind of revered a lot of instructors that i'd worked with that taught me all this stuff growing up right like how did you make that leap from like I've never taken a golf lesson. I'm kind of self-made. Uh, hey, I may want to help people get better at, at this game myself. Yeah. So our golf team actually had a golf camp that went like all summer long. And it was a pretty big camp. I mean, you had a good, I would say between 100 and 120 kids every week that were coming to it. And it was just run by our two golf coaches and then the kids, us actual high school players. So that kind of got me you know, in the door of just trying to learn like, you know, first for myself, but then also how to teach a little kid the game itself. Um, So I did that for four years. And with just gathering all this information and myself, I'm always a visual learner. I think it's something that's always kind of stood out to me. I can watch something and repeat it pretty easily. Um, I think just like movement patterns as a whole have always just been something that like, just resonates with me it's hard to say um but if i see it i can mimic it really really easily and that's just kind of one of my huge strengths and so from reading and looking nonstop, that led me to obviously becoming good myself in golf and then some of my friends who didn't have coaches also that were like you know talented at the game just started coming to me for advice on their their swings and next thing you know i'm coaching them they end up getting scholarships to go play golf at division two division one levels 
And that's not really due to me. I think that's more due to them. Um, but I didn't mess them up and I must have, you know, provided them some sort of insight. So at the time I was like, I think this is something that I could really do is to be able to teach somebody how to play in the back of my mind. I always wanted to play professionally. I always felt like maybe I could do it if I just kept getting enough time. Um, and then just realized as I played with probably one of my really, really good friends, a student that I've helped out uh, many, many times now who's, you know, plays professionally, played at a really, really high level um, at, at the University of Vanderbilt. When I played with him when he was, he was like 12 or 13 at the time, and he was shooting under par from the tips, I realized pretty quickly, like, that's what the capability of being a pro looks like. And, you know, I was good, but not to that level. So decided, you know what, I'm going to get into teaching after that. This is something that I think I can do. Brian, I'm noticing that, you know, you described yourself as a visual learner and the way that you had to teach yourself really lend to either fit with that or help develop it or both. So you are just devouring YouTube videos, which is just visual learning, right? And then also reading as much as you could. And when we read those words that we translate in, that we see off a page, start to create images in our mind about what can be done, like concepts essentially that we can act out. So I can see how that really played out in your learning and then also how that then translates into your teaching um, as things have played on. Yeah, the the visual side of things, it's, you know, always kind of been fascinating to me. Um, just being able to just slowly watch a, a player move. Uh, I can always think of like the PGA Tour with their conical Minolta swing cam. And the biz I would hub. I would, I would video that on my phone and just record it, and then I would watch it frame by frame by frame. And I tried to just understand, well, what is it that they're doing that's allowing them to obviously make that movement? But then also, like, from a collective whole of PGA Tour players, what are the things that are important out of that, too? Just because they, they do move in different ways. And so I remember just recording, I mean, hundreds of swings uh, from the PGA Tour and just watching them. And just trying to understand what a golf swing should look like. I would go to my parents' bathroom because they have this giant bathroom, this giant mirror in there. Mirror. And I would literally just, you know, rehearse those movements over and over and over in slow motion and just try to ingrain that myself. And that's literally how I taught myself how to play the game was just, you know, through a mirror and just trying to repeat what I was seeing uh, from, you know, my little phone back in the day. Uh, just kind of looking at it. Okay, where are they? All right, let me try to do it. And eventually that led to me starting to film myself and seeing, okay, did I actually repeat it or, you know, did I not? And then bringing that to obviously the range and then the golf course from there. Yeah. Ryan, give us the bullet points of your teaching stops before we start to talk about kind of the stuff that you're involved in right now. Yeah. So obviously, like I said, started teaching when I was in high school. Uh, after that, I was always planning on going into like business and, uh, you know, after I found out that, you know, maybe I want to get into golf, this sounds to, this seems like it's going to be a lot more enjoyable than being in like an accountant, which that's what I kind of thought I was originally going to be. Uh, so I, I ended up talking to my golf coach. He told me about this college fair state university where they have the PGM program and had to sell my parents on, Hey, I want to go to school in Michigan for professional golf management. And they're like, that's not a real degree. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I sold them on that and ended up going there for four and a half years, learning all about golf in that time. I pretty much always knew I want to teach. I think my freshman year, maybe I thought ah, head pro or director of golf would be cool. But after working that first internship, since you have to have three of them while you're there, I realized pretty quickly you know what? I want to teach. This seems to be a lot more enjoyable than work being a head pro that's working, you know, a hundred hours a week at times. And there is one moment that I can specifically remember. And it's a pro in Wisconsin that was working at the country club and he walks in and he goes, you want to see how you get a day off? And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm looking at the head pro who's getting no days off assistance. They're working even more. 
And he just goes in and blocks off his calendar. He goes, I'm going to go play golf today. And I was like, that seems like that would be a lot more enjoyable than me working a million hours. And then you start to realize, you know, for just from a financial standpoint, the benefits of, of teaching uh, and being able to be your own boss and those things kind of stood out to me. So through college, I basically traveled all over. I went all over Michigan, all over Wisconsin, uh, sometimes down to Illinois and just wanted to learn from as many good instructors as possible. And so I would go and shadow lessons. I would call them, email them, just try to see, hey, do you mind me just kind of being a fly on the wall? I just want to see how you do it. And was very, very fortunate that a lot of great coaches would let me, you know, actually go and watch them teach, take notes on it, be able to ask them questions. And that obviously started to, you know, bring my understanding of golf uh, to an even higher level at that point. Once I finished school, I had a bunch of different job offers to some really, really good academies, thanks to one of my internships. But I looked at those opportunities and I realized that none of them were going to allow me to teach a ton to start. Every single one was, Hey, you're going to have to come here. You're going to have to learn, maybe work in this little like shop. And, you know, from there, we'll let you start to teach some lessons. And for me, I felt like, you know what? I've done all this work. I've done work since I was basically, you know, 15 years old trying to learn how to swing a golf club. I felt like my knowledge was there. The thing that I felt like was lacking was just me not teaching enough. Even though I was teaching, it was only a few people that I was teaching. You know, it's not a ton of hours that I was putting in, you know, on the lesson tee. And so from there, I wanted to go to a place where I was going to be able to teach right off the bat and just try to figure this out for myself. So I basically turned down all the big golf academies that I had job offers to and decided that I was going to go work in Chicago at a top golf and saw how many people were coming through the door. And the top golf I worked at was very unique because it actually did have a studio. And so I didn't have to be a part of kind of the, you know, the top golf entertainment side of things. I could actually run my own little teaching academy in here. And so you, you, you know how many people come through the door of a top golf. From there, I was able to just bring those people into my lesson T and was very, very fortunate to then start working with some really good players along the way or, or developing players into becoming really, really good. And then things just kind of took off from there. So I did most of my teaching in that top golf and then moved down to Bentonville, Arkansas now. Yeah, Ryan, I just want to pull out a couple key points in that. So, you know, we'll, a lot of the people on our podcast are listening. They want to get better at golf. They want to get better at their craft. And, you know, there are layers between golf and life. And, and many people have contacted us about that. One of the ones that I'd love to pull out for our listeners that is you actually forwent the safe route, which is here's a big academy name and a guaranteed paycheck at a certain thing that would push you farther from what you wanted, but give you a safety net and went, Thanks, but no thanks. I'll take something that if we're really being honest about where top golf instruction ranks in the world of golf instruction, it's lower, right? It's more of an entertainment complex than it is a teaching studio. And you went, nope, give me the reps of what I want. I don't want the safety net and the big name, what might have been good for your resume or your ego. You made the choice. What's going to make me better at my craft, which is give me as many golfers that I can work with and get better at my craft and help them get better, even if it's in a place where the name doesn't exactly scream prestige. Is that a is that a fair pullout of your conversation here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess in the back of my head, I knew that if I was a good coach, if I was producing the result that I knew I could produce and the people were, you know, speaking highly of me that like they were, that all the success would come from there. I did know in the back of my head that this could lead to some challenges of maybe with, you know, good players, um, you know, not wanting to work with me because of where I did teach out of. And that is something that I did experience. Um, but at the end of the day, I started to realize with coaching, it's not just all about understanding how to swing a golf club. There's a lot of different things that come into actually coaching itself from 
how you explain things to, you know, just the process of designing what a lesson looks like. I, I mean, there's so many little intricacies that come into a good golf lesson. And I felt like, you know, from a learning side, I felt like I knew a lot, at least more than most. Still don't know everything within teaching. I'm not going to know everything within teaching, but I wanted to really improve those other areas. And I felt like, you know, working at a top golf where it just seemed like they were going to give me the flexibility to kind of just do what I need to do, that that would be the best environment for me to, you know, teach and, and learn out of. Yeah. So you had basically a situation where you could learn how to not just be better at the golf swing, but be a better golf instructor, create better lessons for people in an environment where they let you, they gave you a little bit of freedom. You know, if we're having kind of a common thread between many of our guests so far, between you and EJ and Alan who have come in, their knowledge and their ability to get value to other people has accelerated in environments where they had the freedom to try stuff and experiment. Not this kind of tight, rigid places where it's kind of scripted to a degree, which again, we've only had three people on small sample size, but just saying common thread here. Okay. Tell us more about what you're doing, where you are now. Yeah, so I still teach. Uh, I don't teach full time anymore, uh, but teaching is still my passion. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, but right now, I am the director of education for Sportsbox AI or Sportsbox 3D Golf. We're a 3D technology company. So if you've ever wanted to basically film your swing and then be able to look at things like how much turn you have or how much you're moving side to side or lifting up and down, we can actually measure the golf swing kind of the best way to think of it. If you know, any of the listeners have had experience hitting off of a launch monitor, that data that you're getting from a launch monitor with like the golf club and the ball, we do that except with the body. Yeah. So it's a uh, motion capture. And if I uh, looked at my research about sports box today, uh, as we are getting ready for our session, it's almost exclusively use through your cell phone, right? So you don't necessarily need a piece of equipment. The idea is you can take uh, videos of swings from different angles. Right now it's face on and then they're, you're working on down the line or they have it. We have down to, the line as well. Down the line and face on. And it essentially measures everything like using joints and kind of the body structure as these reference points for, you know, how far your shoulder turn is or where your weight transfer might be and all these types of things. So it's the, uh, the new evolution ish or the most recent version of the evolution of how do you measure what somebody's body is actually doing in a really objective and accurate way. And this is right about where I step aside and then you and chase go bananas. <laughs> so, so Ryan, obviously I, I was in 3d for a while and, and we joked before we started, like I, I had to teach uh, coaches how to use this system with 18 sensors and a bunch of wires and a bunch of a bunch of stuff. We were a full body motion capture system that had a bunch of a bunch of moving parts to it. Right, looked uh, like you were wearing a vacuum on your back. That, that's that's right. Yeah, some of the systems before us had big old wires and cords. We were trying to make it a little bit simpler and just had a couple had 18 straps and it was wireless. Um, but I know, you know, Raymond and I have talked about in some other podcasts that we did, like what 3D has taught me in this this um, process of me being the director of education, similar role as you in another company. I, it was a crash course of biomechanics and learning from guys like Dr. Phil Cheatham and just the the pioneers of all this industry and the the just the the best of the best, right? Um, what has 3D taught you? What has 3D taught you from how you coach if, you know, when you, you still coach to maybe even like misconceptions you might've had when you, you first started coaching? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think over the last year, the biggest thing that has stood out to me about 3D is just, it's a communication tool is the best way to put it. It helps us explain things to a student a lot better. Uh, if we look at like somebody that maybe is, you know, sliding too much in the downswing, you could show them through 2D and show them with a line like, hey, look, you're sliding too much. But that's a lot more impactful if you put a number to it. If you say like, hey, look, you've moved six inches on the way down. 
you want this to be four inches. Everybody can understand like how much six inches is and they can understand, okay, this is roughly where I need to be. And I find that it makes it a lot easier for players to actually then go and make that change compared to us coaches, you know, drawing lines and, and kind of looking at it from a 2D perspective where a student maybe has never looked at lines before in their entire life or things like camera angle play a really big role in when we're drawing those lines. So to me, you know, 3D, I just think, and I, I hope all coaches that listen to this, you know, get this message because it is the ultimate communication tool. Our students understand a lot more from us when we're using 3D and this doesn't have to be sim like over like too much information is the best way to put it. This can be very, very simple. And I think that's just up on us coaches to make it simple. And for a student, I mean, 3D is just going to provide them with incredible feedback, just like a launch monitor does. They're going to be able to get that same feedback and be able to make the adjustments needed, you know, inside of that practice session. I, I think we can all think of it from our students that go to the range and, you know, for me, if I just talk about my lesson process, I would give drill videos. I would show how to set up the drill video. I would, you know, lay out, here's what I want you to be doing in this hour session. And it's great. It's awesome for the student to be able to have, but at the end of the day, that's up to the student then to go and do it. And when they're off on the range, if they have a question, they have to text me, reach out to me. And unfortunately I'm teaching. So maybe I'm not able to get back to them right away. And Maybe, you know, they just don't have a productive practice session or maybe they're doing their practice session and they're curious of like, am I doing this right or am I doing this wrong? I think it's better, but I don't know. And so that's where I think 3D is really the ultimate tool because it gives you feedback. It's going to allow you to be able to see, hey, did I do it right or did I do it wrong? And so that's probably the biggest thing that 3D has taught me is just how valuable of a communication tool it is. Obviously, there's things in the teaching side that has, you know, been eye-opening in 3D as well. But I think that's really what stands out to me uh, over the last year as I've been teaching coaches how to use the system. So it provides a not just uh, something that coaches can use, but players can film their own swings. And it, and again, not like a oh, did I do this a little bit? But like exactly tells you exactly how much in degrees and angles, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Or distance and angles. Excuse me. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. we have linear angular uh, measurements on there. So, <clears throat> you know, the metric system, you're looking at centimeters or if you're in the U.S., you look at it in inches and then obviously you have the degrees. So, Ryan, one of the questions, like I love the quantifiable feedback, right? Like I love the instead of just saying, hey, turn your hips a little bit more. Let's let's actually hey, look, you're at 30 degrees of hip rotation, in the backswing and tour average, even though tour average is tough sometimes to use, but tour average is 45. Like maybe we could get some 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 benefits from turning more. Um, one of the questions that I always got from people that were interested and in, even we were more business to business. Basically, we were we basically sold them to sold it to coaches and you guys are in at least getting into the consumer model a little bit more and selling this product to consumers. How do you how does the how does 3d data without a coach say they're not they're, they don't have any coach close by or they're self taught and don't want to get it don't want to get involved with coaches. How does the 3d data that you guys provide help your average average slicer fix their slice? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if you think of the golfing community, I think there's roughly what 80% of them don't take lessons. And so with sports box, you know, the, the consumer side is the side that is going to you know be much, much more profitable compared to this really, really small coaching side. Sure. But coaches are obviously really important to be able to make this successful and, what coaches can do inside of the app is going to make it a lot easier on the student side too. But inside of our app, our app is able to give you a recommendation as well. So a player could go ahead, go to the range. Uh, we have this little auto capture mode. They could turn it on, take three swings or take a swing and it'll tell them, Hey, here's a specific goal for you. So maybe they're, they are sliding too much in the downswing. It would then say, Hey, you're sliding too much in the downswing. Let's work on this goal together. And then it would pull up the PGA or LPGA to a range 
And then the player can customize that if they would like, or they can leave it as is. And then now when they're on the range, they can actually make a swing and get that feedback seconds later. And to be able to see, hey, did that swing thought actually change my numbers or did it not? And everybody says like real versus feel. And that's obviously really true that, you know, how that feels to us probably isn't what's really happening. And so being able to quantify it just makes it a lot easier for us to truly know what's happening. And we can, you know, stop just guessing at it and actually have the true answer of did I do it right or did I not? Follow up to that though, like if... If we say that the sports box AI is the MRI, right? It's going to tell you what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times you'll, you know, obviously for MRIs, you need a doctor to be able to, to come up with a plan to fix whatever the problem is. You know, with TrackMan, if you're a right-handed golfer and your path is seven or eight, 10 degrees to the left, outside in, negative, however you want to look at it, it's going to, you're pretty much predisposed to hit certain types of shots, right? Mm-hmm. How do you guys give how do you guys recognize what pattern because you know say most players that have too much slide too much lateral in the downswing end up moving the path too far to the right but not all right like there's always outliers and what how people move i like the saying from a friend of mine uh works for swing catalyst um dr scott lynn great guy always says people are messy people are messy people are messy right how do you guys take that that data and do, do does the player give feedback of where the shot went what shots they struggle with and then does it start to work through like okay these are more of the slice patterns that we see here's what you need here's the data you need to look at like how does that process work yeah the current version of it doesn't take in that information of you know what the ball flight did and then how it would change it uh i would say because we are using ai this is something that can be kind of taught but you have to teach the ai really like how us coaches teach in making that decision. Because what I would say the sports box team has recognized is that just because somebody has a fault, let's say somebody has reverse pivot at the top of their backswing, that doesn't mean that they're only going to hit that one shot shape. Like it doesn't mean that they're always going to slice it. Doesn't mean that they're going to always hit a hook. They can hit either one. What happens in transition is going to determine usually which one of those is going to, it's going to be. So you would have to teach that AI a bunch of uh, what Dr. Phil Cheatham calls if then statements to be able to basically say, okay, you know, based on the information and then work through, okay, here's where it would need to be. It's currently not there yet. And honestly, us, us at Sportsbox, we see the value in coaches and there's 80% of people out there that don't want to go and get a lesson or, or maybe have never thought about getting a lesson. And so we're hoping that this is one way that we can kind of get students to be open to going to a coach because a coach is going to make it so much easier for them. Just like you said, with looking at an MRI and having a doctor obviously explain that to them, that's the truest statement. A coach is going to be able to look at these numbers and be able to understand exactly what is happening, where currently the AI is giving you a suggestion and it's definitely going to help the player but it might not be the fastest way to get where they want to be. Um, there's a bunch of different ways that you can attack a problem. And that's where I think a coach, you know, should really step in and, and really benefit that person. Yeah. Ryan, what is, so you and I have talked about how this technology can not just be good for instruction, but could be applicable to a variety of different things. Right. So um, I am of the opinion educated and perhaps inside information opinion that this type of technology is going to be in broadcasts of golf pretty soon, where not only are you getting the track man and the ball flight or whatever version of it you're getting, you're also getting something that you're going to be able to see a players, you know, right now it'll come up and it'll have ball speed and um, curvature on whatever. And then in the next couple of years, it'll be, and you'll also see how fast that player turned and what their hip ratio was and all these types of uh, measurements. I imagine this technology can also provide the objective data that helps bridge the gap between a lot of different areas that we oftentimes see as different but are quite interrelated. So, for example, you and I have talked about, well, if you could sports box video an entire round of someone's golf, all their swings, my guess is if you went by and went, how many of these swings did you play confidently and how many did you didn't, you would see 
the objective change in the physical golf swing, right? You would see different numbers and different angles, some that are indicative of predictable, useful golf light and, and some that are not. Correct me if I'm off course with where you think some of the future stuff might go with this. Yeah, I mean, right there, that's something that I just nerd out about. I look at it from obviously my other sporting like backgrounds and I played football. I was a film junkie. I was taught at a very, very young age how to watch film and look at film and watching myself and being very objective in like what is happening. And golf is interesting because you don't have that like in game, you know, look back at things. You can obviously maybe get a swing or two in there, but you don't have every single swing that you took out on the, in that tournament. So it is something that is really, really fascinating. This is something that I've done with a few of my players is trying to capture as many of their golf swings as possible, specifically in those just stressful situations to try to see what changes, because I look at the golf swing as patterns and Usually when my player is going to be under a certain, you know, stress, whatever pattern is that causes them to hit that bad golf shot is, is going to come out at some point because they're not always going to hit it great. And so I find that it just helps us talk through then mentally what is going on and it helps them understand, Hey, when I'm in this situation, this is what my tendency is. And a lot of times players kind of just assume or they have an idea of like, oh, it's this that's causing me to hit that shot. But with this, it's it's like cut and dry. They can't run away from it. And it makes it a lot easier for them to be in that environment of, okay, I'm feeling this certain way. And because I'm feeling this certain way, I know I have a tendency of doing this. Like with one of my players, he will lower with his pelvis and his chest just excessively. He'll drop down four or five inches with his pelvis in his chest and he hits this low bullet. And so in those situations, he can think to himself, okay, I know how I'm feeling. I know what this cause is. Let me just try to have this swing thought of feeling like a little taller in my swing to help obviously, you know, prevent maybe that bad habit coming through that bad tendency in his swing coming through. Yeah, no doubt. You know, and just as an aside from me, I imagine that sometime in the future here, probably not very far off, you're going to get, um, this type of technology that is going to be measuring the physical effects on skill execution in situations where you're also, once the technology catches up on more of the neuroscience side, where you're able to measure, hopefully with some high fidelity, brain activity and neurochemistry, which is then going to tell you what kind of psychological state somebody was in when they hit a golf shot in an objective way and what the objective impact is on their physical skill execution Again, in a way that is super helpful for us to be able to go back to at the very beginning of a shot. First of all, where were you psychologically? Here's what that did to your brain activity and brain chemistry. And then that's how it played out in your swing so that you can try to facilitate better swings more often, avoid unfunctional, less functional swings sooner at the at the starting point. And also so that when people are playing, let's say, for example, they play around and you're noticing, actually, I played them from a psychological state that was facilitating, but the swings was still breaking down. Now you know that's where we go focus our learning and training on next versus a round of golf where you play the whole thing through anxiety and you see the type of deleterious effects to the swing because of the anxiety. Then you would know I need to go address that first before I do that. So again, that allows the student and the team around that golfer if they have a team around them to address causes more often than symptoms, because you're having a pairing between these things and you get the link between them both, which is going to be really cool once we figure out how to get that technology up there. And I, I think back to even like the whoop stuff in the Ryder cup, I posted something a while back with, um, I think it was, it was two years ago. They were doing a bunch of them. What I can't imagine is five, six, seven, ten 10 years from now, if they ever have this technology where they're getting, like imagine somebody with the chip that has has a struggle with the chipping of seeing competition coming down the stretch and then gets in that situation and the numbers just spike out of the roof and yeah. talk about made for television like you're sitting there watching this about either is the is the train going to wreck or are they going to pull through and 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 
you know, persevere or whatever, survive. And it, yeah. it'll be fascinating if, if the, say they can wear something in their, in their hat to get the, cause the, the tour, the, the TV, the, the producers are going to demand it. They're going to want yeah. that information. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be made for television type of stuff, which is cool. Um, you know, the downside right now, what's holding it up, the, the, right now, the motion capture technology is outpacing the neurofeedback technology, neurofeedback being the types of devices that can measure our brain activity in real time. There are several that are, you could wear while you're playing golf, but the fidelity that they give is not super great especially relics like you would you would get some correlation i imagine but it wouldn't be enough it doesn't measure it with enough accuracy that you could go this is correlated with this to a degree that is of statistical significance meaning predictable enough but once they figure that out and have something that is easily wearable in the form of a whoop um, as long as it has a high enough fidelity like reliability and validity the pairing of these two technologies is going to be peanut butter and jelly it's going to be great Ryan, I want to I want to nerd out a little bit more about some data. Um, I a couple of things that again going back to my my days with all the 3D stuff, like some of the some of my big takeaways that I learned that I had no idea about before I dove into it was, you know, misconception of how you know hip speed creates club head speed, you know, and how even though we found out that LPJ tourist players rotate their hips faster than the, guy, than the guys do. I've said that a bunch on here. Another thing that was a big one for me was the difference between shoulder rotation and rib cage rotation and how, how different those are and how we can fake rotation with scap retraction and different movements there. Um, what I'm going to try to get out of you is I, I want, whether it's listeners at home that would like to hit it further what are some of the numbers that you guys see with the guys that hit it further obviously they move their their body faster but like what's some stuff there you see or like you you talked about you know what when you were kind of developing as a player and as a as a coach what were some of the important things that tour players did that maybe the average golfer doesn't you know like that kind of stuff you said that you looked at video and you said you kind of broke it down and a lot of times we as as whether it's coaches or even armchair coaches at home, look at it and be like, well, I would change that. Like, that's not good. But instead, a lot of really good coaches will look at these swings and say, why are they good? They're good because of these movements rather than they're not good because of those movements, right? So kind of an open-ended kind of uh, kind of question, but I'd like for you to talk about, again, like what 3D has taught you about specific motions that you have added to your coaching that you look for, maybe if, if it's even an order of, of what you're looking at first, what are some, some signs and symptoms and some data for people that want to hit it further? Like give, give some guy, give our listeners a take home of some information that they can apply to their golf swings. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's a really good question. I think one of the things that you pointed out there, I, I did find fascinating looking at the difference between, you know, the men and the women and really what's different in their golf swings and it is really interesting that women have faster pelvis turn speeds and men are a little bit slower. And yet men are able to hit the golf ball much further. And from coaches, sometimes they'll talk about this concept of X factor. X factor has a direct correlation to, you know, being able to hit the golf ball further as a male, but as a female, there's no correlation. So, so Ryan, define X factor for our listeners. Yeah, the easiest way to think of X-Factor is just the difference between where the chest and the, the pelvis in terms of angular motion is. So at the top of somebody's swing, if their chest is at 90 degrees, pelvis is at 45, their X-Factor will be roughly 45 degrees. It won't actually be that. Uh, bend and side bend play a role in that X-Factor number. But from a simplistic standpoint, it'll be somewhere around 45. There's also this concept of X-Factor stretch which X-Factor stretch is going to be how much the X-Factor grew in transition. So something that every golfer I think would benefit from, and this is what the PGA, LPGA Tour players do so well, is they start transition before they even get to the top of the backswing, right? The pelvis is going to start to rotate before they're at the top. And when that moment happens of the pelvis starting to turn, so maybe their max pelvis turn, is 48 degrees at that moment, whatever X factor is. And then 
if you would look at what the max X factor is, which when somebody's pelvis is turning the opposite direction, their chest is moving still back away uh, from the target, that X factor gets larger. And that's how you come up with this concept of X factor stretch. Uh, X factor stretch has significance for men in, in terms of how far we hit the golf ball. But for women, there's no correlation at all, which I find that to be very interesting. And I think it is going to shape you know, the us coaches and how we teach women in the future, because there are significant differences in how men can do it and how women can do it. And to me, that's something that I was always fascinated by just because, you know, some of the girls I taught in high school, I couldn't make them as good as I made the guys. And it kind of bothered me, but that's another story. Okay. So, so to kind of wrap that up a little bit. So basically what you're saying is when ladies get say 90 degree chest rotation at the top and then 45 degree pelvis rotation at the top. So the X factor is 45. And typically there's been some research in the past that has shown that the more they can stretch from there. So then the hips would fire and let's say the hips go to 40 and the chest stays at 90. Then that, that X factor stretch was five degrees. So it it stretched Mm -hmm. more, more five degrees more, right? There's a limiting return with the ladies than there is necessarily with the guys. And would your, and I've, we've been on this for a long time with our ladies and I, I hate, we call it like too much stretch or too much lax in the system. It's not tight enough. Do you think it's because lady golf ladies are just a little bit more flexible and they obviously have, you know, more flexible hips than guys do from childbirth reasons and whatever, whatever else we, we want to talk about there. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at it from, you know, just the way that a woman is, they're typically going to be a lot more flexible than a man. Um, But also there are strength differences as well. And so based on how they swing a golf club and kind of where the the strengths are in their body and compared to a man, like to me, because men have stronger arms, forearms, wrists, they're going to be able to obviously move a certain way and women probably aren't going to be able to move that same way. So there's obviously you have that X factor stretch and then you have this concept of trying to close the X factor to me, if I'm, you know, this isn't based on science, but if I'm looking at men and women, men do a better job at being able to close that X factor. Women do not. And that's to me why you would see the X factor stretch getting men more distance. And then for women, them, you know, potentially not having any more distance from having that additional stretch. And it's just the strength in the arms, the wrists, most likely that would lead to them not being able to close that X factor uh, as significantly, as well as just the amount of turn that women have in their golf swing compared to men. So I'm going to follow up real quick, Raymond. So the, I think you touched on something that's super important, Ryan, and it's, it's, it's the closing of the X factor. So again, nerding out again, if we're at 90 at the top, with our chest and 45 with our hips at the top to close that gap. That would mean getting the, the rib cage to kind of catch up. Now it doesn't have to get back to the same amount as the hips, but one of the things we see, and it's one of the reasons why you see a lot of girls on the LPJ tour jumping a lot at impact in my opinion, because of if the, if the hips go too fast and the rib cage can't close, then the arms get left behind. And then there's going to have to be a sudden burst of juice from something in the system. And it typically breaks down, getting closer to the club, which is hands, wrists, arms, shoulders. And then there's going to be a, a release. Now we're changing low point. We're changing all that stuff. And then there has to be a jump. And so the ability to stretch the hips in transition, but really probably in my opinion, the more important ability is to get the rib cage to catch back up. So now we're talking about ground forces and we can nerd out all day long. We're loaded into the ground. Now we've got a platform to push up from and we can turn the corner and rotate and do all that stuff versus so many young kids that can keep fire in those hips and the rib cage can't keep up. And now the arms get behind and now we're in big, big trouble. Do you, do you agree with all that? Yeah, 100%. I totally agree with that. To me, if I'm looking at like order of importance there, I personally care a lot more about if they can close the X factor than I do about what their awesome. X factor is. Yep. Hmm. Ryan, do you or, or Sportsbox? I know you had sent me some stuff a little while ago where this technology could also be useful for people to maybe um, highlight a couple of maybe not again, you know, even if you're doing a golf swing, you're not going to say, well, if you do this, you're a hundred percent going to do this. So, but looking for maybe like a couple of 
areas for people where the app might be like, hey, you're at a higher risk of injury, particularly this type of injury based on the movements you're making and how much force you're putting on certain areas, you know, like in the future of this thing, could it potentially look at someone's swing and be like, based on our data, you're at a higher risk for, you know, lower back injury in this way because of how much speed you have and basically that you're not closing this, you know, X factor angle or whatever, you know, whatever terminology that we would put on that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of my roles with Sportsbox. Obviously, I train coaches on how to use it, but it's also been consulting. It's been working with tour pros or college teams to be able to help give them insights like that on, okay, yeah. are your players at risk for injury? If so, where are they at risk? And so myself, Dr. Phil Cheatham, and another one of our colleagues, Nate Ashton, we, we came up with this report and we call it like a injury risk report. Yeah. Um, just because a, a high number doesn't mean that they're going to be injured, but it, it does potentially point them into some directions of, hey, based on how you swing the golf club, these are some areas that maybe you need to put some additional time and focus on uh, in the gym or just from like a preventative uh, standpoint. Yeah. Or maybe it's something that you should change in your swing to help obviously try to stay healthy. And so you kind of look at the the TPI, the Titleist Performance Institute side of things, and they'll run somebody through these body scans, right? They'll they'll tell you where you're flexible and you know where you're limited, and then they'll say, well, this can cause injury. But to me, they're missing the fact of what's happening when they actually swing a golf club. And so I was looking at that from an opportunity standpoint of okay, I have my tour players that I work with and here's kind of their TPI screens. Here's what's happening in their actual swing and was able to then pinpoint, oh, based on these two pieces of information, this is where they're truly at risk of injury and this is where they're not. Because just because you're limited in, like for me, my hips are limited in rotation, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to have like a hip injury. If I swing the golf club like John Rahm, where you know, maybe I don't have a ton of turn with my hips in the backswing. I might not be putting any additional stress on that actual joint or body uh, part that you're looking at. So that is something that we are doing. It's been pretty exciting to be able to work with college and also professional players and just look at their golf swings and point them in the right direction. It's kind of a good way for them to be able to see, you know, like, okay, here is that TPI screen. Here is what's happening in my golf swing. And then we just provide the information to their team of coaches. So their swing coach, their college coach, their physio can then make the appropriate decisions uh, on what should or shouldn't happen. And I think that's really em empowering, honestly, uh, because there's so many players that are playing out on the PGA, LPGA tour and all the mini tours where they're battling constantly for some sort of just discomfort and injury. Um, and this can hopefully help them make the right decision on, you know, is it something that I should change or, or can I get around it for the time being? So if I've got low back pain or a, a team is ha have a couple of players with low back pain and I'm using low back pain as just a quick example, where, what are you looking at? What, what are some of the injury the things that pop off of like risk injury, risk injury, where, where do you guys look first? Yeah. With our injury report, we're looking at specific, we call them indicators, uh, inside of our app. So there's probably 15, 16 of them that we're looking at, starting with the kinematic sequence. So we're looking at their max turn speeds. Uh, we're also going to be looking at a concept of like gain factor as well, which is very similar to a smash factor. So it's telling you how well you move speed from one segment of the body to the next segment. And from there, if you see somebody with like a really high gain factor, that could be telling the person that they're overdoing it in a certain segment. So we start there from kinematic sequence, right? We're looking at max speeds, kinematic, uh, the, the gain factors. We're looking at these percentiles. And based on that information, we can then start looking at the other data incorporated and things like range of motion. So this stuff is probably things that a lot of people aren't going to understand, um, but we'll look at like chest turn range of motion, pelvis turn range of motion. Uh, side bend range of motion and, and, and when you and Ryan, when you say range of motion are you testing their range of motion or is this just the amount of rotation within the golf swing this is basically depending on which one you're measuring it's going to be measuring it throughout the golf swing okay. so it's going to 
basically show you how much they've turned throughout the entirety of the golf swing for the chest segment, the pelvis segment. And from there, we can then look at it against our databases of PGA and LPGA Tour players, depending on their gender, and figure out where are they high in terms of the percentile. So if you see somebody that is outside of the range or maybe in the 90th percentile, that can point us in the direction of, okay, maybe this is something that could cause an injury. And based on all this information that we're taking in from these various trackers and indicators would then be able to show us, okay, you know, here's what could be causing that lower back pain. A lot of times in that case, low back pain, usually stemming from side bend. A lot of times side bend Uh, rotation, too much, too much X factor stretch can be, can cause that too. Um, Quick follow-up on that too. What about body types? That was always one that we were always interested in. Like I'm six, seven and, and tall and skinny. And then, you know, put me in the same database at the time with a Fred Funk, who's tiny, short and tiny. Like do you guys, what do you guys do with body types? Yeah, we're building out body types, uh, inside of our kind of, you know, our ranges and everything. Uh, if you, if you look at the PGA tour or LPGA tour, you know, everybody is is different, right? In terms of how tall they are, how short they are. And, and that information is going to change how somebody swings a golf club just naturally because of how much bend at the waist they're going to have. That is going to change how you can swing a golf club. It's just inevitable. So this is kind of where I get really, you know, nerded out in golf is just for us to actually be able to have scientific data on this is how you should approach that person in front of you instead of just like a blank sheet of, okay, here's this person, I'm going to try to teach them into this specific mold. And that specific mold is maybe meant for somebody that's like five foot eight, five foot 10. And you're trying to teach it to somebody that's six foot seven, like that's just not going to work. So to me, that's where I really was interested in starting this role with sports box was to try to get to the bottom of a lot of these things of, okay, you know, based on a person's height, build how should they swing a golf club or what things could cause them issues that way when i am working with these elite level athletes and trying to help them you know be out on the tour or make a living out on the tour i'm giving them good information and i'm not changing something just to change it uh, because i know if i look back at my previous years of teaching and this is also something that being at sportsbox has really opened my eyes to is there's been times where I have changed something in somebody's golf swing because I didn't like it. And I didn't understand that based on what they were doing and how they were moving, they were just fine. Yeah. Mm. And that can obviously be detrimental to a player. And, you know, I, I don't want to mess anybody up. I want to do as good of a job as possible. So it's going to allow you at some point, once you can build this in perhaps um, more, you're kind of instead of a cookie cutter mold, you're creating a mold more for that person's body type as to what movements are likely to be more efficient for them and also what movements might increase the odds of injury, which would then better um, inform an instructor. Well, these are the types of things I would look for with a player of this body type versus this player of this body type and what types of things you might actually change. So again, it's more of that objective data that tells you this is what it actually is versus the, well, this doesn't look right, even though it might look right for somebody who's by looking right, it might be right for somebody who's six feet tall, not for someone who's six foot seven. Yeah, 100%. That is definitely what's going to happen in the future. And that's where, when you look at 3D, I mean, 3D has been around for a really long time. I mean, 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. The issue with 3D is just trying to get the data. I mean, if you look at when we do our accuracy testing and Dr. Phil Cheatham will have people out there, he'll get them hooked up on AMM and sports box. And in that day, that full eight hours, we're going to be able to work with eight people in order to be able to compare sports box to AMM. And that's just because of how long it takes to get them set up on yeah. AMM in sports box. We've gone to events like the, um, the Ryder cup. We've been at the president's cup. We've been at these big events and we'll do like 2000 swings throughout that time there. Like we were at the U S open and we did 2000 swing analysis there. And so because we are a sensorless system, 
we're able to get all this data and we're the only technology in the world that can do that. And so that allows us to be obviously really creative in the research that we can then do, you know, because again, it, it's motion capture and it's um, wireless and like it's through the phone. So there's no vest, there's no moving, there's no stationary cameras. It's all just through your phone. And then uh, like you said, you don't need to outfit anybody into anything. Yeah, correct. We're an app on your phone. So you yeah. can go to the app store right now. You can type in Sportsbox, download it, record your swing, and then 10, 15 seconds later, be able to look at your 3D data, where yeah, before that would take 15, 20 minutes to get hooked up to sensors. If a sensor gets misplaced or isn't calibrated correctly, that can give you bad data. And so now it's just it's just a lot easier to be able to get yeah, yeah. that data here. Nice. Okay. Ryan, from an accuracy standpoint, comparing to AMM to gears to all these other other systems, how how are we testing against all of them? Yeah, so we compare ourselves to AMM. AMM is what we call the gold standard. Dr. Phil Cheatham, world-renowned biomechanist. Uh, he is our actual chief science officer as well. So <clears throat> when we look at our accuracy compared to AMM, we're within two to four degrees. And within the, an inch of linear movements. And the important thing is, is when it is a little off, it always reads the same way. So you're never going to get it where it, you know, tells you maybe the turn is on the high end. And then all of a sudden the turn is on the low end. It'll always be, you know, repeatable. it's consistent within and, itself, basically. Yeah, it's consistent within itself, which is the most important thing that you're looking for when it comes to the technology. Hmm. Super. Uh, I was super blessed to work with Dr. Phil and, and. And and one of his daughters worked with us at 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 my swing, and they're they're great people. He's he's awesome. Um, one of the questions I have about I'm going back to the data still. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a golf nerd. Sorry, I can't help myself. Um, is the with the data that you guys are compiling? Would you agree that driver swing, iron swing, say wedge swing are different there's a lot of different movements required to be great at all three yeah there's definitely differences between them and i think if you just think of it from like a golf club standpoint and how that changes our body and ball position you know it's going to be pretty eye-opening and how that changes what happens in 3d and so if you think of like a driver we don't have as much bend at the waist and we're trying to also swing up on a driver the ball position is going to be more forward that is going to influence our influence our body to move a certain way to be able to achieve that. Where in iron, we're obviously trying to hit more down on it. We're trying to get that low point to be more forward. And so that is going to obviously be changed inside of the numbers as well. Um, <clears throat> and same thing with, with wedges too. So it's pretty fascinating to just look at the different types of swings and, and kind of how it changes across the board for a student being able to see, okay, where is their you know, let's say like chest sway, for example, with the driver, since that one changes quite a bit uh, with each of the clubs, you would see with the driver, typically the chest sway will be behind where it was at setup, which allows them to then be able to swing up and, you know, hit the ball a million miles uh, in the be air. Behind that impact, right? Yeah, behind that impact. Yep. And so then irons with low point where as far as what's the data with chest sway or any other indicator that you would recommend? Yeah, so if you look at, you know, just from the data standpoint, uh, chest sway with the driver at impact is going to be two inches forward or two inches behind where you were at the at setup. With an iron, it's going to be four inches ahead to zero. So you can see the chest sway with an iron isn't going to back up. It's going to be going a little bit yeah. more forward, helping us be able to get that angle of attack to be more downward, low point to be more forward. Yeah. And then wedges would be even less movement, more less moving off the ball, more for, more forward movement. We got to hit yeah. way more down on them. Yeah, more forward movement. I don't know if it's a. I haven't seen the wedge data yet from our side of things since it's all being compiled right now. But I would guess it's a minor change. You're probably looking, you know, one to five inches ahead of where you were at setup. So before we finish up today, Ryan. Um, you work with a ton of high-level players. You work with a lot of people who are just trying to get better, a bit of a range of things in your teaching career. You're also doing a bunch of stuff for Sportsbox. Where can the people find you or get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you, what you're doing, 
get a lesson from you? Where can they find you? Yeah, they can reach out to me on social. My Instagram is probably the best place. I'm not in it on it a ton. I don't post on it a ton, but they can message me there at Ryan Crawley Golf and I'll be able to help them out. I do in-person lessons, online lessons. You know, I'm an expert in the field of 3D. So if anybody is interested and, and wants to get more information on their swing in 3D, uh, I would love to help them out. And the same place for instructors who are hearing this and more and interested in perhaps integrating either motion capture or specifically sports box stuff that you'd be the guy to contact anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. Instructors, if they want to get set up with it or just even learn about 3D, they can definitely reach out to me there as well. Uh, you could also reach out to my email, which is ryan at ryancrawleygolf.com. That's another spot that they could get a hold of me too. Awesome. 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 Rhino, okay. thank you so much. Thanks for coming yeah, on. Guys. This is fun. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys. You guys are doing incredible work. Uh, I, you know, I'm fascinated by just the performance psychology side of things. So keep it up. This is something that's going to change the industry for sure. Getting there. Thank you, sir. We appreciate you very much. And uh, all the best to you and the girls as everyone's uh, getting over the the sickness trend. I know it's in your house. It's in my house. And Chase, it's only a matter of time. Before it's it coming. It's headed house. this way. I'm staying away. <laughs> so, all right. The best to everybody. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for tuning in.